Yesterday, um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, I think a picture's going to come up now, there he is, what a hero he is of mine, 30-year-old, 34-year-old footballer, played his last game at Paris Saint-Germain. We're not sure where he's going to be playing next season, but I'm slightly excited, shall we say. Now, yesterday, he received two standing ovations, both of which he initiated himself. (laughs) Now, he has led his team in Paris and his national side, Sweden, to, let's say, some success. He is a great leader in many respects, but he isn't exactly known for his humility as a leader. Let's look at some of these wonderful quotes which were summarised. Zlatan doesn't do auditions. Don't you think that is a wonderful thing? Uh, he, uh, go on. I can't help but laugh at how perfect I am. It's exactly what, what all of us think every morning as we wake up, obviously. And last one. One thing is for sure. A World Cup without me is nothing to watch. <laughs> what an amazing man he is. Go on, I think they're very unnatural for Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Now, he will be judged in the future by his amazing scoring record. And it is amazing. Uh, he will be judged by the amount of trophies that he has won for the, the clubs and the nation that he has uh, played for. Now, the qualifications, if you like, for a great football leader as he has been, are very simple, aren't they, in some ways? But things are slightly different in the church, as I think you've probably just heard, and I hope we will see as we go through uh, these uh, verses. I've been looking back over the last few days as I've been preparing this, and over the kind of 15 years or more now I've been in, in ministry, and I've seen a number of things. I've seen church leaders who've run off with men, men who've run off with men, leaving their wife and their kids behind. I've seen church leaders who've become alcoholics along with their wives, or just alone. I've seen church leaders' wives who have become so upset and uh, disillusioned with uh, ministry in their churches that they have committed suicide. Sadly, the list could go on and on and on, and I could be here for a long time just listing terrible things. I even read uh, this week of church leaders who have murdered their wives. Sadly, it all happens. But more than anything else, as, as I've reflected on these things... I've just realised it absolutely breaks your heart. When you see leaders, when you see friends, in my case and in some of your cases as well, uh, who make shipwreck of their ministry that they're involved in, their lives, their families, it is utterly heartbreaking. Ken Hughes, a respected scholar, senior minister, who wrote Disciplines of a Godly Man, many of you might have read that book, He listed a string of things that he had seen, not only leaders in his own church do, but elders and and many and staff as well. And he commented that so often you view such people so positively, see them as so gifted individuals, they're so wonderful in front of people, they're so gifted teachers and so on. But then it all crumbles. And he spoke of his response in this way, and I echo these words. He said, you have never been had until you've been had by a so-called Christian brother. And I know what he means, and I echo his words. He says, you may as well have your heart ripped out. It will be far less painful, and it will be far quicker to heal. And Paul knows this. As he writes to this young, troubled church in Ephesus, he's addressing a crisis. And there are leaders, there are teachers in the church who 
are distorting the good news of Jesus Christ. We saw that back in chapter 1. And primarily, what Paul is writing here is not, you must have elders like we see here in chapter 3. He is saying that, but primarily in his thinking, he's saying, you must not have leaders. You must not have elders like that, the ones we see in chapter 1, the false teachers. And by writing his list, he's, he's pointing the finger at the false leaders, the false teachers in Ephesus, and he's saying, that is why your church is divided. That is why the reputation of your church is, is just kind of being rubbed in the mud. It's because you don't have leaders like we see here in chapter 3. And the leaders in chapter 1, the false teachers, perhaps they've risen to their position because they were just amazing orators. Perhaps they were very, very intelligent people. Brilliant men. That may be true. But have you noticed as you look through the list of qualifications for leaders in the church, did you notice? Well, ability doesn't seem to feature very highly there, does it? Did you spot that? It's there, but it's not a primary concern. If there's one thing that you go away with today, please understand that I think what Paul is saying of the leadership within the church in Ephesus and all church leaderships is that character means more than anything else. We must be discerning though, because too often ability, things like skills and gifts that they may have, charm, talent, blurs the absolute necessity for good character. Church leadership at times can be very attractive. Some people kind of look at it and they go, oh, I love that kind of power, I love that kind of prestige. That can be wrongly associated with church leadership. Too many strive for positions of uh, authority within churches. <clears throat> and they see it as kind of a step up for them. I think wisdom has shown me over the many years, and I, a number of commentators pointed this way, and they said, Wisdom suggested that we should be a step down, both financially, in terms of career path, many other ways. But you might ask, why is Paul getting so upset? Is he just a bit of a highly strong individual? You know, he's like, oh, so tight. Why is he getting so upset about the church leadership here? Why does he have to be so ordered about everything? We saw it with, you know, the roles of men and women in church last week. Now it's the leaders. Well, let's look at the context, the broader picture, if you like, of why that might be the case. Just after our passage, look at verse 14 there. We see that instructions are given. Verse 15, why? That is, all the instructions of chapter 2 are given. Why? Verse 15, so that we might know how to conduct ourselves. Church order, you see, is spelled out here. So that as we see in verse 4 of chapter 2, go back there, it's also that people will come to a knowledge of the truth. In understanding the truth of the gospel, what have we seen? Well, chapter 2, verse 1, we've seen that they'll be, they'll be praying and uh, with thanksgiving, that they won't be disruptive in verse 8, that they're properly adorning themselves in verse 9. All this order stuff, why is it here? Well, it's to lead others to salvation and lives that honour that salvation. This isn't fuddy-duddy church politics. This is creation order. This is church order to enhance the gospel. We must not settle for less in our church or any church that we might find ourselves in the future. 
Good order and leadership will promote all that we see in this chapter. But reciprocally, bad leadership, as we see in chapter 1, will promote all sorts of ungodliness, ungodly behaviours and, and traits within the church. Basically, the picture is this. If the leadership is X, well, the church will be X. If the leadership is Y, the church will be Y. Where you, you, know, you can replace X and Y with any kind of godly or ungodly concern. If, if the leadership are mission-minded, well, of course, the church will be mission-minded as well. That is the concern we see here in 1 Timothy 3. Leaders lead, so we must be careful. So let's have a look. We're going to run through some of these, some of the characters of leadership required to promote the gospel and enhance its witness. We must keep that in mind, the broader picture. All this happens so that chapter 2, verse 4, so that all people will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is. Good order for the church to promote Christ and to encourage lives that honour Christ. Let's have a look at, therefore, some of the qualifications. We see that in our first point, the qualifications of an overseer. Now, firstly note, we're going to run through these very fast, so you're going to have to keep your eyes open. Firstly note that the church leadership um, is a noble aspiration. We see that in verse 1. Look at the verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. Now that's Paul's way of just saying, wake up, listen in. He's done it a number of times. He says, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Church leadership is to be understood as a noble task. Therefore, the qualifications that he's about to spell out are for the men of the congregation to aspire to. Now, not all will become church leaders. But in aspiring, of course, to these qualifications, they will lead and love those around them for their good and for the good of all, in an ordered, loving, gospel-orientated way. We must be careful, though. Often we see things like overambition for leadership in the church, and I think that should be strongly resisted. If someone is pushing for the role, I don't think they probably understand the role, given what we're about to see. If people fully understand the role, the pressure, the responsibility, the time, the sacrifice that is needed, I don't think anyone would be so self-promotional. I remember when Sarah and I first realised that this was going to be kind of our life uh, ahead. We were there in York in a lovely house, lovely jobs, all in it, everything was like rosy and fun and brilliant. And then suddenly we go, oh my goodness, what are we letting ourselves in for? I think Sarah cried for about five days in a row. The cost was going to be huge in so many ways. It is a sacrificial task, but it is a noble task. Paul addresses the role of the overseer to begin with. Now, overseer is taken from the Greek word episkopoi. Don't worry about that. So it's the term we get the term bishop from. So, you know, a collection of bishops. A collective noun for them is an episcoput. Um, in this text, we simply need to know that overseer, bishop, elder... They're kind of all the same thing, really. That's clear because, I can show you this later, but in Acts 20, they're seen as the same thing and understood. Likewise, in Titus 1, the same. Elder, presbyter, overseer. All the same in that sense. So we get 15 or so qualifications for elders or overseers that follow, which means probably less than a minute on each. Okay? But it begins with an important catch-all statement. This is probably the most important in some ways. 
Firstly, we see that they are to be above reproach. You see that there? These men were to have a good reputation. And the critical thing is observably so. They are to be above accusation and they are to be judged in respect to all the qualities that follow. Basically, if, if, if someone was chatting about an elder in the pick and whistle down the road over a pint with some pork scratchings, that's my favourite, by the way. Um, if they were there and they started mentioning, you know, oh, that Rob Turner bloke. If some guys came up and said, oh, you don't want Mark and Rob, and started accusing him, well, that would be an issue. No one ought to be able to bring an accusation against them according to the following qualifications. Elders are to be above reproach. Secondly, was he faithful to his wife? Isn't that interesting? That marriage is the first priority. Now, that doesn't mean that an elder must be married, but if married, it is the first concern or qualification. Simply, they must be a one wife man, literally there. And too often, this has been understood in a quantitative way. And that dismisses, essentially, the qualitative, qualitative nature of marriage. Faithful to his wife means faithful to the covenant of marriage. He must be a one-woman man, not just numerically, but in his heart, in his mind. He must love and honour and cherish her. It will mean no emotional relationships of great degree with other women. You know what I mean by that. It will mean fighting temptations online, in the office, avoiding the flirtation of others. Whatever the cost, he must be a one-woman man. And whatever the change of circumstances in their marriage, he must be a one-woman man. Elders must be faithful to their wives. The next three qualifications are often grouped together. Uh, they all fit the, uh, under the idea of kind of, they are kind of self-control things. Well, I know the central one is self-control, but you might say self-mastery. It's, it, it's basically taking a grip of, of your urges and your, and your desires. Of course we have the, the opposite example within the Bible. King David, of course, was the one who was failed to master his desires and his urges. And the consequences were utterly devastating for him and the nation which he led. So the historic warnings are there, if you like. So we see the elders must be temperate. See that? That is clear-headed, cool, not easily angered. Secondly, we see elders must be self-controlled. These three qualifications examine, you see, that personal nature of the elder. Now, we know what self-control is. I don't need to spell that out for you. You're intelligent people. I think the bigger question for us in a very individualistic culture is the fact, how do you know? How do you know that someone is self-controlled? It is very easy to hide. And the point is, we must know each other, we must know our leaders incredibly well. It's alien to our culture, but we must spend time, be accountable in our relationships such that we know Proverbs 16, verse 32, is very helpful in this. It says, better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. Now, warriors are fantastic, aren't they? They look really impressive. 
One who takes a city, well, that would be fun to be around that kind of person, wouldn't it? Because you'd be able to share all the loot and all that kind of stuff. It would be great. But in God's eyes, in his wisdom, patience and self-control are better. Elders must be self-controlled. Thirdly, uh, in this little section, elders must be respectable. Now, I'm not going to spend time on this, but simply, it's the same way. It's, it's kind of the, it's the mirror word, if you like, of self-control. Self-control is the internal Respectable is external self-control, essentially. Visible to all. Now, you might be thinking as you get to the end of those three that these personal qualifications are set up a very high standard, don't they, for church leaders? And at this point, you might be thinking, well, I'm looking around, the bar is too high. Yes, the qualifications are lofty and they haven't got easier over time. But we are not to nuance them. We are not to accept a drop in standards. If no one fits, no one fits. It is a high standard, but it is also a possible standard. Why? Well, have you noticed that as we look through this list, what we see here is, if you like, the fruit of the Spirit worked out in a life. Elders, you see, are to be men who allow Christ to work in and through his word and by his spirit and produce fruit. Evident for all to see. Now we turn quickly now to the qualifications that I guess are more applicable to the ministry uh, of the elders within the church, the leaders within the church that they be involved in. Six qualifications very quickly here. Let's go through them. Elders must be hospitable. Literally, the word is lover of strangers. Now, I can list a whole bunch of people I know in ministry um, and who I've met, senior ministers, who would uh, suggest that because of their personality type, this makes it virtually impossible for them. Some even give up because they're introverted, for example. They shouldn't be an elder. Notice this isn't conditional hospitality either. I've had staff and apprentices in the past who only want to be hospitable to people that they know, people like them. I'm afraid that isn't being hospitable at all. Hebrews 13, I think, is helpful in this. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Elders must be hospitable. Elders must also be able to teach. Not just having the gift of the gap, not just having great oratory skills, Paul spells this out in Titus, two letters on, in a little bit more detail. Able to teach there means able to correct. Having the guts, but also the gentleness. And the depth of character to do so. As well as the knowledge, which is necessary. It also means in Titus that you must be able to defend the truth. Again, knowledge is an absolute requirement But primarily it is a matter of character. It is being willing to honour and uphold the truth of God's word. And that is more important to you than your reputation before others. Because when you defend the truth, you will not be popular. Elders must be able to teach. Elders must not be given to drunkenness. When I used to go up to Clapham Church... uh, we used to go to a drink afterwards in a pub, and it was an old temperance hall. 
I, I never got over the irony of that. I just chuckled to myself every week as I ordered a pint um, after church. Temperance is, though, the word that is used here, as in not given to drunkenness. It literally means not to linger around the wine or the gin, whatever your tipple. Christians have always led the way in this kind of distinctive living. The temperance society of the Industrial Revolution was set up by Christians and it increased productivity in this country and boosted our own economy. And it was recognised as such by the government. And it was supported by the government financially. <clears throat> Likewise, Sir Major General Henry Havelock, one of my great heroes of history, that is, front right uh, statue in Trafalgar Square. You might never have noticed him. He was the first army officer to lead his soldiers into battle sober. Havelock was a, a Christian and probably the biggest public hero within the Victorian era of this country. He is the first non-royal to receive a state funeral. He was a man who stood up and who was not given to drunkenness in himself or his men. I wonder, have we become less distinct? It wouldn't be a new thing. Paul criticises the church in Corinth because people in church were even given to getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. The qualification of church leaders is clear. We must not nuance the application. Anyone in leadership needs to be very, very careful. I know leaders, church leaders, who drink a bottle of wine a night with their wives because it seems to be the right thing to do. It is not normal. It is disqualifyingly dangerous. The minister who taught at the first weekend away when I was up at Christchurch Mayfair, some of you were there, used to teach at various weekends away for churches like St Helens and All Souls. He has recently had to step down from ministry, along with his wife, a prominent spokesperson for evangelical Christians on TV and radio, both admitting a dependence and addiction to alcohol. It is utterly heartbreaking. Elders must not be given to drunkenness. Elders must not be violent but gentle. Literally the word is giver, not giver of blows. We know what gentleness looks like. It was the way of Christ. It is also the fruit of the Spirit. Elders must not be quarrelsome. That is someone needlessly who needlessly quarrels. There's, a, of course, a very fine balance to be found here, though, between brushing over issues and nitpicking and looking for controversy. Elders are not to be those who prefer Britishness over godliness. Too often, kind of a professionalism of, kind of what is it right in the workplace is imposed on the church for the sake of productivity, and issues are never addressed. It's not quarrelsome to confront sin in someone's life. And it's not quarrelsome to root out injustice. But needless quarrelling has no place. Elders must not be quarrelsome. Elders must also not be lovers of money. Of course, that doesn't mean that they can't have money. They can have lots of money. But we must be careful in a culture that we do not... We do not appoint elders because of their money. 
There's to be no preferential treatment for the wealthy. Os Guinness, who is a kind of Christian apologist in America, has written some brilliant work over the last 20, 30 years. He once damningly said this, I was reading an article, he wrote about this. He said, if a leader is drunk on wine, you throw him out. If a leader is drunk on money, you make him an elder. This can so easily be couched in words like this, and I've heard these. It will be good for the gospel and good for the growth of the church if they become an elder. I've heard phrases like this. It plays them on side for when we need more. I think that is disgusting and I think it is dangerous. Of course, and we must say this clearly, Proverbs teaches this very clearly. A wealthy man will often be very able. A wealthy man will perhaps be a good leader. There is often good reason why they have become wealthy. Those things go work together very clearly. And they will often tick very many of the boxes that you want to tick for eldership, if you like. But if they love money, no. Please recognise it is very hard to have a lot of money and not love it. But the bar is very high and it will not move. Elders must not be lovers of money. So from those more personal to those kind of ministry-orientated qualifications, Paul now finishes with kind of three qualifications for the elders and kind of spells them out a bit more for clarity's sake, I think. Again, think context. He's probably bringing the crosshairs of his argument firmly and fully onto those false teachers in chapter 1. So to the last three qualifications, elders must manage their families well. Home seems so important, doesn't it, to Paul? Probably because often the church is met in homes. The church in Ephesus might have been a number of little uh, congregations meeting in the bigger homes in that city. More likely, the elders' homes in that city. And his point is fairly simple, therefore. If you can't lead your home family well, you're not going to be able to lead the church family well. Again, the standard isn't perfection, but it ought never to be stagnation. Sarah and I recently visited a church in Huddersfield, you know, um, Lewis came down um, to do our weekend away last, last year and we went to do his weekend away uh, just a few weeks back. It was a huge privilege, it was a real eye-opener to realise how privileged we are here. But one thing that really caught my eye was one of the elders and leaders in the church, he had a young boy who struggled and was medicated for ADHD. And he was a huge handful. It was a massive challenge, both to the family and the church family. Paul's point here is not that the family of an elder should be perfect in every way. Children always immaculately presented. Children always well behaved. The critical thing here is management. How they are managing the imperfection of their family. And that is what is so impressive with this leader up in Huddersfield. He managed a very difficult, sometimes very embarrassing situation with strong but loving discipline. And everyone in the church respected him as a result. Elders must manage their family well. Elders must not also be a recent convert. We see in verse 6 there, don't we, what, what seems obvious, but often is very much ignored for pragmatic reasons. 
The danger is always that they will become conceited, as Paul says here. Do you see that? Literally means filled with smoke. I love that word. Hot air. They think they are something or someone when they really are very little. They're probably nothing. Often driven by a self-centred fantasy. They think they have all the answers. Just because we are youthful in London in a family of churches that like to plant new churches, it doesn't mean we can bypass such wisdom and instructions. Again, if there is none that qualify, none qualify. We need elders that aren't conceited, but rather that are humble, men that are seasoned by experience and maturity. Elders must not be a recent convert. Elders must also have a good reputation, Literally a beautiful witness to outsiders. There cannot be perfection, of course. No one is qualified to that degree. But trajectory, intention, must be there. Being elder is is not a political, powerful office. It is a sacrificial service of the gospel. It is to adorn the gospel and is to make the gospel known. But notice similarly high expectations for the deacon. I recognise the time, and please don't think I'm going to spend equal time at all on the deacons. We do not have time to look in detail, but note a few things if we can in closing. The word deacon is literally the word servant or attendant. That is how the word diakonos is translated everywhere else in the New Testament. Only here and in the book of Philippians, for example, is it translated deacon, where it's referring to a particular office or position within the church. And its primary meaning, it's the outworking of the word deacon, therefore, the office of the deacon, is a very menial role. Like Christ said in Mark chapter 10. Do you remember Mark, in Mark 10, where the disciples are buying for positions with Christ, in verse 43 to 45, he says what? He says, I've come to what? To serve and to give my life... Essentially, I've come as, as a diaconate, I've come as a deacon. It's the same word, not to be served. The disciples themselves also called themselves deacons, servants of Christ. Unfortunately, what we've seen over many years in the church is that often the office of deacon has for some become a thing of power, of prestige, which is extraordinary, given how far you know, Christ was to sort of spell out it's, it's a role of service. Of servanthood. Essentially, character again, we notice, is primary in order to serve humbly. And it is essentially to enable the teaching of the overseer, the elder, in the previous section. If you want to look at that in more detail, that is what was given in Acts chapter 6 when the first, if you like, deacons were appointed. But for us, as a church, well, at this stage, we don't have any deacons, official deacons. And in time, I'm sure we will. We will be served by men and women as deacons with that humble responsibility. If you want to ask questions about that, I'd be very happy to speak to you afterwards. But let me finish this way. Because many of you will be sat here, well, this has not got much to do with me. Please do not leave today thinking that. It was all for you. And it was all for you for this reason. If you are an elder now or potentially in the future, note the standard and, prayerful, and prayerfully prepare for that noble task. 
If you're not an elder and never will be, first breathe a sigh of relief. And then pray for them. Lots. That they may lead and that they may love you and teach you in the manner that adorns the gospel. Why don't we pray that that is so? Heavenly Father, we've seen a standard which seems so extraordinary, and therefore we do pray for the elders here at Christ Chelsfield and elders that we know elsewhere, leaders. May we as a congregation uphold them. May we not, if you like, overlook just one qualification in the sake of pragmatism. I pray that we would just long and pray for and support elders that they might lead the church faithfully, humbly, sacrificially to adorn the gospel and so that the truth might be proclaimed and so that people, more people would see the beauty and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who, if you like, fulfilled all these qualifications a hundred thousand times over. He lived that perfect life that we could not live, but came as a servant to die on a cross, taking on all the punishment that we deserve. Lord, that is the gospel that we long to be proclaimed in our church. May we uphold good order that that might be so. Amen. Well, it's marvellous, isn't it, that under all of that, 